It's nice to be here tonight. Uh, it's nice to know that Cliff is sick. That's <laughs> how we move up in AA. <laughs> Just wait for those old timers to have a bad moment. Seize the opportunity. <laughs> Cliff was here to say, we're having fun! Um, he's a dear friend of mine, and uh, I'm sure he's going to be all right. Uh, he's a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, it was quite a surprise that Pat called me at the last moment and said, uh, what are you doing? I said, nothing. He said, uh, you want to come and speak at Old Town? I said, sure. What date? He said, tonight. <laughs> now, I had some really important things to do tonight. There was some reruns of Hee Haw. <laughs> I, you know, I was going to rearrange my shelf paper or something of that magnitude. But, uh, you know, um, I have grown up in Alcoholics Anonymous, and one of the things I, I've learned is that when AA says now, you know, you don't ask, gee, could we do that at a later date? This is rather inconvenient. The answer is you bet. And you just get dressed and you come. And, and, uh, and why I'm here tonight, I have absolutely no idea. I know that, uh, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have gotten drunk tonight if I didn't come here and, and share my experience, strength, and hope with you. But um, it's going to put something in my bank account. I don't think that I'm going to say anything that's going to, you know, keep somebody sober for the rest of their lives. That's inconsequential. Uh, the speaker is the most unimportant person in a speaker's meeting, by the way. If uh, you're new and a number of people identified themselves as new, uh, and it was an interesting phenomenon I saw tonight. I, I've examined this uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous. The majority of people who introduced themselves tonight are in the back of the room. The majority of the people who are of service in this meeting are in the front of the room. The majority of the people that will be sober next year on this date will have been sitting in the front of the room. The majority of the people who will be drunk a year from now on this date are sitting in the back of the room. Now, if that pisses you off, good. <laughs> <clears throat> so I urge you to be resentful at me. I'm in the book. Call me a year from now and say, Peter, screw yourself. I'm sitting in the front of the room. Um, because truly, Alcoholics Anonymous is a participation sport. It is not a spectator sport. My sobriety date is uh, May 20th, 1984, which gives me 15 years, 6 months, and 1 day. But who's counting? Uh, I am. And um, I'm sober by the grace of a loving God, and a whole lot of participation on my part. I, w I would like to tell you that I was struck sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I came here, I heard one meeting, I was like just lifted and uh, never thought of a drink again. That is not my story. I was not alcoholic when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I came here on that day through a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings. <laughs> and I can't tell you how difficult it is sitting in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting knowing you're not alcoholic. <laughs> now, if you can identify with any of that, welcome. And I would like to especially welcome the one person in this room who is new tonight, 
who did not identify themselves. Because that's me. Because, see, I, I was an alcoholic when I got here. I've sat on my hands. I've stared you with absolute defiance and anger and rage. Those are the only emotions that I had going on. I listened to these speakers, and I mean, I just wanted to beat the crap out of them. I knew they were lying. I followed some of them around to prove it. Uh, they get up here, and they, they talk about this, you know, they're so wonderful, and they so and I just wanted to choke everybody, <laughs> especially the speakers who were happy. I hated happy people. And if you come to Alcoholics Anonymous, you're going to find a bunch of happy people. And I don't know how people can be happy resigning themselves to the fact that they're not going to drink today. Now, I'm not stupid, by the way. I'm alcoholic. I'm not stupid. And I know when they say things like, I'm not drinking today, they really mean I'm never going to drink again. Now that is insanity if you're an alcoholic of my type. And, you know, uh, you know, Pat and I were, were talking before the meeting and he, was, he has heard me share this story. I can't tell you how many times. I, I prefer he'd come up here and tell my story. <laughs> come on up, Pat. <laughs> He's going, tell that one and, and tell this one. And, and Vince is going, tell that part. and, and uh, you know, truthfully, I, I'm, I was a blackout drinker. I'm also a blackout speaker. <laughs> I'll be up here and ramble for a period of time, and, and uh, you know, some, then Eugene will ring the bell, and uh, I won't pay attention, and <laughs> they'll run out of tape, and I still won't pay attention, and, and then I'll be done. And I won't have really much recollection of what I'm saying, you know, because it really doesn't matter. What I'm saying is, is what is going on in my head at the time, and, and if my head's a busy place. I'm sure it's not true for you, but it's really a busy place for me. I got a whole band up there. I got people who share at the most inopportune times. You know, and, and you know, it's not socially acceptable. Usually, the, I've got one jerk who shares a lot, and, and he's kind of a, a little dweeb, but has a very large head and a big mouth. And, and he's a real negative guy. And he's always saying things like, what? You're stupid. <laughs> Thank you. What? You made a mistake. Thank you. And he'll do it, you know, like when I'm reading a portion of chapter five. If we, everybody's watching you and, you know, you want to be precise because, you know, there are people who know exactly what it is and they're going, seven, eight, you know, and you know, rarely have we seen a person fail. And right in the middle of it, it goes, hey, you don't know what you're saying. Now, what I want to do is, is say, excuse me, folks, shut up! <laughs> okay. But it's inopportune, you know, and, and you can't do that at work, you can't do that to your employer, you know, because they, you know, they lock you up for shit like that. And, and uh, in my case, they say, are you drinking again? No, if I was drinking, I wouldn't be here. You know, and, and I had totally and absolutely forgot, I was sitting here, somebody mentioned uh, uh, Thanksgiving, you know, a time to be grateful. And it, uh, the holiday is just a few days away. And I seem to speak here on holidays. Uh, last time I spoke was on Christmas uh, at this meeting. They always get Jews to speak on Christmas. 
I'm the only ones who show up, you know, it's not a big day for us. <laughs> you know, a couple mistakes and we could have had it all, but, you know. Whoops! Um, and, you know, if you're like me, how do you get more grateful on any particular day? You know, Thanksgiving is a day for, for them, the amateurs. New Year's Eve is a day for them, the amateurs. Professionals like us, you know, you can't get drunker than drunk on New Year's Eve. <laughs> I can't tell you how many New Year's Eve's I miss preparing to get drunk. <laughs> Come to on January 3rd and go, shit. <laughs> I had plans. Where were you? I don't know. <laughs> Tried. And on, you know, on, on, for a moment of gratitude, you know, they sit down and they, they talk about being grateful one day a year. You know, that's the saddest story I've ever heard. See, for an alcoholic of my type, if gratitude is not a, a, a key ingredient in my sobriety, I won't be able to stay sober. And, you know, it, fortunately, Alcoholics Anonymous, as, as I understand it, is a, is a process. It's a journey. It is not a matter of becoming totally consumed with gratitude and reaching that highest level of. It's managing to be grateful a little bit today. I don't have to be grateful for the entire 24-hour period, but I have to maintain some portion of gratitude during the course of the day. You know, I'm, I'm looking at an, a, a a destination that perhaps I will never achieve. I know that I'm on the journey. Uh, today there's a, kind of a sadness in my heart. A, a very good member of Alcoholics Anonymous related to rest today, a gentleman who used to come to this meeting by the name of Mike Finch. Uh, you know, he's gone to the big meeting in the sky. And um, he passed away from a very difficult disease. And, and I can tell you that a person such as myself with an opportunity to watch somebody like that managed to live the life that God gave him with the pains and the anxiety and, and, and the troubles with the kind of dignity and sobriety that he mustered is beyond my wildest imaginings. See, I, I have heard a thousand times, maybe someone's never heard it before, that the reason there is no pictures in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is because you have to come to meetings and see the pictures here. We've got to see the living examples of what this program is about. You know, and I, I'm in this meeting tonight, and there are any number of friends that I have here. You might not think that I'm your friend, or you might not think that, uh, you know, we even have that kind of relationship. But see, I, I steal everything I can get my hands on. I steal lines from speakers. I steal concepts of God. I steal your sobriety. I look at these people. I see them getting sober. I watched a gentleman today take a four-year cake. I, I swear to God, I, I thought he had 90 days. I took a four-year cake, and I watched him come in. You see, because I'm selfish and self-centered, I, I had no idea he had four years. But I'd watched that man walk through life with dignity, and, and you know, just to be a part of his life gives me some hope and admiration that perhaps these things happen to me, or might happen to me. I am the worst at judging me. I have a faulty computer. And that faulty computer is about me. 
Now, I can tell you exactly and precisely what you should do with your life. That's easy, because I'm not emotionally involved in it. But what I need to do is, you know, I get paralyzed with it. And so I wind up having a sponsor who has no emotional involvement in my life, and he tells me exactly what I'm supposed to do. And my very first words are, yeah, but. Second one is, you don't understand. And the third one is, my case is different. And he nods, and he says, shut up and do it. Fortunately, I have a sponsor whose voice is louder than the noise in my head. His voice is louder than most people's. His, loud, his voice is loud. And I need that because it gets busy up there and I want to do something different. I want to run my own life. And the best I could do, the very best I could do, is get to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, you know, I, I come from a small town back east. It's called New York City. <laughs> Growing up, I felt odd, goofy, and different before I took a drink. And I grew up in a part of that town called Harlem. I guess you live in that part of town and look like I do, you're going to feel odd, goofy, and different. <laughs> but I, I suffered from things that I did not know. I couldn't put labels on them. It wasn't big in my neighborhood at that time. And, and I didn't know that I suffered from restlessness and irritability and discontent. I didn't know that. All I knew is that I didn't like me, I didn't like where I was, and I wanted to be there. Now, I spent a lot of time getting there, and then when I would get there, you know, I found out that they moved it over there. <laughs> then I would do whatever I could to get there, and then when I got there, they moved it over there. And that was a theme, you know, some theme of my life. I mean, I'm always looking for the answer. I'm looking for something to make me feel okay with me. And I did not know that alcohol was going to be that answer. I know that when I had my first drink, perhaps an alcoholic was born. I'm not sure, you know, I come from a, a lineage of parenthood, you know, I'm, I'm an adult child of a functional family. We're rare. Uh, I've never seen my father take a, a, a drink except a sip. My mother never drank at all. My sister, who's crazy, but she's not alcoholic. Um, I don't see any alcoholism anywhere in, in my family, uh, but yet I became alcoholic. So that shoots the theory of shit, you know, that you are what you come from. I know that when I took a drink, I crossed that imaginary line immediately. Now, the first drink I don't remember very much. I will share it with you. Everybody thinks it's cute. It's part of my story. I was reminded of it constantly. You know, uh, it was one of those things they always had to bring up and, and make you feel like you're less than. It was Christmas, and it was 1952. I was two years old. Uh, they gave little kids at the party a, a drink at my little buddy Eric's house, and they gave Eric a glass of eggnog, and they gave me a glass, and Eric did what most people do, even alcoholics, when they take their first drink. He kind of went like this. I thought that was an odd reaction. I didn't deter me. I took my first sip, and I did this. <clears throat> now, what is unique about that particular evening is that the same thing happened on that night over and over and over again, which is the true definition of insanity, looking, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, looking for a different experience. Uh, I like mine, and then I like Eric's. My favorite drink of choice is yours. 
<laughs> I will always save mine until yours is gone. <laughs> I was that way with drugs, too. Uh, was, yours was always best. And then I ran out. Sorry. Um, and then I liked everybody else's around the room. And when I took a drink, my behavior changed. I became a little different. A kind of a metamorphosis took place. And they thought that my behavior was, was uh, somewhat socially unacceptable for the circumstances. Uh, and they put, decided to put me and Eric and lock, him, lock me and him up in his parents' bedroom. Uh, another pattern that would stay with me for a long time until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And they gave us a ball to play with him. And we were playing ball, and the ball rolled under his parents' bed, and we couldn't find it. We couldn't see it. It was just too dark. It was lost under there. And this keen alcoholic mind said, we need some light to look under the bed. And so I, back then, they used lit candles on the Christmas tree. And I popped off one of those candles, and I looked under the bed. And I saw the ball for a second or two. <laughs> Unfortunately, the bed caught on fire. Then the drapes caught on fire and the house burned down. Now, I should have run right into Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd have been a true newcomer in every sense of the word. But you can't come to Alcoholics Anonymous until you know what the problem is. You know, we have a triangle and it says you know, unity, service, and, and recovery. And uh, it's a magnificent building block. The most spectacular thing known to mankind. The Egyptians do that, you know, thousands of years ago. I look at it slightly different. I, I have to look at the first leg as what is the problem. <clears throat> and if you don't know the problem, you can't go on from there. And see, I, I never determined that alcohol was my problem. Never. And I would go about my life not knowing what the problem is. And so I, ha suffering from this restlessness, this irritability and discontent, I, I went hither and yon trying to find the answer. And I looked around and, and you know, I didn't do well in school. I, I, am a, I don't have a high school education. Uh, I, I was labeled in third grade, you know, I, one more time, I wasn't doing well, and the teachers had me tested, and they brought me in, and this old battle axe by the name of Mrs. Orange sat me down, you know, got that bony finger, and, and my parents were sitting next to me, and she pointed at me and said, you know, Peter has such wonderful potential, if he'd only apply himself. Why? I don't want to do this. I mean, I'm really one of those people, if I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And so school was out, and, and, and I just liked being out in the neighborhood. I liked hanging out with them. You know, the ones that my parents say, don't ever talk to, those became my best buddies. And, you know, uh, we, we looked around and determined what we were going to do when we grew up, if we ever grew up. And, you know, we watched our parents go off to work. And they'd go and work real hard every day, doing the same thing over and over again, coming back at the end of the week with a measly paycheck and living a, a life that we knew we didn't want to live. And I said, well, that's not going to work for me, so I'm not going to go to work. So I had to find another career opportunity. And we read it tonight. If you want what we have, I found out what you wanted, then I acquired it, and so I sold it to you. Um, <laughs> You know, kind of the barter system. And uh, that worked well for a while, but, it, you know, stealing television sets became cumbersome and, you know, things of that nature. So I, I realized I needed to get into another occupation, but I kind of liked the people that I was hanging out with. 
and so I became a commodities broker. Uh, maybe I was in the import-export business. Um, you know, I, I, I just sold drugs. It was a whole lot easier. And, you know, I started selling, you know, pot and then pills, and then we just, we progressed. Whatever would, was hot and contemporary at the time. Now, I identified myself, by the way, as an alcoholic, and uh, I did drugs once. Uh, from 1962 to 1984, continuously every day. And uh, you might say, well, aren't you one of those? What are those? You know, the, the drug addict and the alcoholic. Well, no. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a drug addict. <laughs> Not like you wino scum. <laughs> and then I was getting a lot of sneers. And I'm a phony, by the way, if you had to figure that out. So I, I became a drug addict and alcoholic. Then I became an alcoholic and a drug addict. <laughs> and I'm sitting in these rooms, and I've been here for about nine months, and I'm not doing too terribly well. I'm not getting it. I'm not comfortable here. You seem to be getting it. I seem to be getting more and more irritated. And I'm more and more enraged every minute. Now, it doesn't really work well in Alcoholics Anonymous sitting in these meetings with a gun in your belt thinking of when you're going to kill the speaker. <laughs> so if you're here with, and you're new and some identified yourselves as new and uh, you have a bad attitude, welcome. I understand perfectly how that is. You know, it, this is not the well society of America. Uh, emotionally, we come here with a few difficulties, and uh, in my case, the prevalent first primary emotional agreement that I had going on was rage. Anger was just mild. I just was enraged all the time. And I was not doing so well that somehow, I don't know why, somebody noticed it. And this very kind, loving man by the name of Johnny H. Um, and Pat's laughing because he knows who he is. He's a nasty old son of a bitch <laughs> who has got a tremendous story and a long-term sobriety. Literally grabbed me by the throat, slammed me up against the wall, and explained to me that I suffer from the disease of alcoholism and that you're an alcoholic. And that we don't determine here what you imbibe to have the disease of alcoholism. We only care that you're here suffering from that disease because we have one disease and we have one program of recovery. And if you want what we have, you have to do what we do and you have to be who we are. And I said, well, I don't understand that. He said, listen, we don't just differentiate the wine drinker from the beer drinker or the tequila drinker. You go into a cancer ward and you say, they're all dying of cancer. You know, the, the guy with liver cancer doesn't thumb his nose at the guy with, with liver cancer or prostate cancer. They're all there and they'll do whatever it takes to survive. And when you say, if you're just an alcoholic, you'll be part of this organization and then you'll be one who can fit in and have what we have. And I knew that wasn't going to work. My case was different. 
And to prove that, I was going to do it next week. I was going to go to a meeting, and I was going to say, I'm an alcoholic. And they happened to call on me, and I stood up and said, my name is Peter, and I'm an alcoholic. And all of a sudden, it was like the weight of the world fell off my shoulders. Now, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just sharing my experience. Then I had this sponsor jerk who told me that I should stand up and identify myself with first and last name and tell him that I was a grateful alcoholic. I said, but I'm not. <laughs> he said, I don't care. <laughs> he says, act as if. You will become so. I said, really? I said, and why do I have to use my last name? He says, because Peter can get drunk. Your name is Peter Fleischman. You are in the book. If somebody wants to talk to you because they're having a rough moment, you call up the operator and say, I'd like to talk to Peter, please. And she'll say, Peter who? Well, I don't know. <laughs> and we're not anonymous here. I'm anonymous at the level of press, radio, film, and now television. But I'm not anonymous inside the fellowship. So I got up and my name is Peter Fleischman, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. Lying sat down. I have been saying that now for 13, 14 years. And I am all of those things. But it didn't happen overnight. You know, and I, and I had some problems. I, I, um, I tried every remedy that a portion of Chapter 3 can talk about. I went from one place to another, switching one thing for another, trying in lives, trying cities, you know, always broken up with periodic moments of incarceration. <laughs> always thinking that next time it's going to be different. You know, and, and I need to share just two quick little vignettes of my incarceration. Um, you know, there's a time I was in the Bellevue Hospital for the Criminally Insane. You know, wearing that coat, one size fits all. <laughs> kind of doing the Thorazine shuffle. <laughs> I know those paper slippers do work under the right circumstances. Because uh, you can't get your feet off the ground. <laughs> Saying to myself, how did I get here? I thought it was good acid. I don't you know. Another time I'm in the Rawway Penitentiary, you know, and I'm doing a small stretch for, you know, what I do. Always for what I do. You know, and, and as a blackout drinker, you come through and you're looking at steel and concrete and, you, and you're wondering why you're there. You're hoping that you haven't been sentenced yet. You're wondering what the judge is going to ask you. And when that particular time I was in there and I had gotten out and, and uh, you see, I, I'm one of those people that go for one drink. I don't know that I have a disease that's twofold in nature. I don't know that I have a disease, you know, that's an obsession of the mind and an allergy to the body. I don't know these things. All I know is I'm thirsty. I'm always thirsty. And so I'm in there and, and, and I get out and, I, and I, I have a powerful thirst. And there's nobody waiting for me, so I walk down to the uh, bus stop, which is a rather long walk. And at that bus stop, uh, waiting for the bus, there happens to be a bar there. And I walked in that bar, and I, I did what I have done a thousand times. I had intended to have one drink. 
Now, I always judge myself by my intentions, and the judge always judges me by my actions. <laughs> I don't know how that screws up, but it always I, I have wonderful intentions. I got crappy actions. And so I had that one drink, and that one drink that you know, kind of goes down, and, and it had been a while since I had a real drink, and it, you know, that, that Pruno crap, and it, you know, it came back up. Not all the way, just there. And I don't know that, that this, this, this thing that is just so magnificent for me makes me feel that I need to have another and another. And before I know it, I'm, I'm out of money. Now, I know what sadness and loneliness is for an alcoholic of my type. That's sitting in a bar looking across three feet away from me where all those bottles lined up, and that's just where I need. And I haven't got what I need to get there. And some guy taps me on the shoulder and says, you're out of money, aren't you, kid? And I said, yep. He says, well, I know where all the, you know, booze and money we can possibly use. There's a liquor store down the road. We can knock it off and we'll be set free. Now, I should have been able to tell him, excuse me, I was just down the road in that building. <laughs> this is not a good idea. The answer is, you bet. And eight hours later, I was back in that penitentiary. Now, the thing that really pissed me off is when I got back there, people said, Peter, what took you so long? <laughs> you know what? And I didn't get it. I just didn't get this thing about alcoholism. You know, and I'm not the brightest person in AA. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a plotter. And I couldn't quite understand that, you know, what, why, do I, why do I have to drink? Because it works so goddamn well. Alcohol did for me which nothing else could possibly do. It set me free. It made it absolutely magic. Now, I can look at somebody, for example, who's in, like an overeater and say, my God, isn't one slice of pie enough? You've got to eat the whole showcase? I mean, knock it off. That's disgusting. And they look at me and says, well, isn't one bottle of gin enough? <laughs> no! It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And, and see, sadly enough, there are so many nice people in our lives who have been talking to us forever. But they come from a place that they can't understand it. Just where I can't understand the overeater or the person who suffers from anorexia or bulimia or from, from you know, gambling syndromes or whatever other addiction they might have, they can't understand my alcoholism. They can't understand your alcoholism, and they never will. They do the dumbest things I've ever heard. You know, you go to a party, you'll see them. They'll say things like, you know, come on, let's have another Oh, no, no, no. I have to stop now. Why? Well, I have to go to work. So what? <laughs> or, you know, have not, no, no, I, I have to drive. Me too. <laughs> and I don't even have a car. <laughs> and the worst thing they ever say is, oh no, 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 why? I'm starting to feel it. That lets me know right away that they don't understand. They don't like the sensation produced 
by alcohol. The thing that took me to the gates of insanity and death and beyond. Those are the things that make it wonderful for me. Now, the only unfortunate part if you're an alcoholic of my type, and I'm assuming that one or two of you might be the same. <laughs> that best buddy of mine, my best friend in the whole wide world, turned against me. It stopped working. It stopped working for years before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I chased it. I chased it with an vengeance and a, and, and a relationship and a love that you know, only us can understand. And I tried other combinations, looking for a, just a moment's relief. You know, a friend of mine talks about, he's got that eight seconds, that for eight seconds it works, and for the rest of the day you're in hell. And I'll pay the price for eight seconds to spend the rest of the day in hell. Well, I came out to California with another wife, and we're gonna try to clean it up one more time. And she came out, we, we uh, got married on the tip of Long Island, outdoors in the middle of a hurricane. <laughs> kind of an omen for that relationship. <laughs> and she was one of those kind, untreated Alamans. She, she was going to fix me, help me. And uh, we moved out to California and we had a, you know, she, her job was to get it all together and plan it all out. And mine was just to figure out how much drugs and alcohol we needed for the trip. It's the only job I had, and I did it really well, I thought. We ran out in Pennsylvania. <laughs> it was kind of an ugly trip the rest of the way. And we got to this condominium in Mission Valley, and, and, and uh, I watched her do something that was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen a human being do. And one day the woman unpacked, put everything away, took the truck back, registered for school, and got a job in one day. I was so exhausted watching her. <laughs> I went immediately to the jacuzzi and kind of hung out. And, and it was, the relationship was great for about a week. And then, then it started to grind a little. You know, she started things like, you know, are you going to get a job? <laughs> oh yeah. Working on my resume. Now I've never had a job. The only people that I thought would perhaps employ me is the Bureau of Weights and Measures. Uh, yeah, that's a gram. Mm -hmm. Hello. Don't need a scale. No problem, Bubba. Uh, but I don't think they were looking. And so when the heat's on, I go back to the only place that I know, and that's the bar. You know, and, and the progression of this disease is that you start off in the fancy bars and, and you know, the upscale places where the, the good-looking people hang out. And when her money runs out, you start to go lower and lower. You start to find, you know, lower companions. You find a place like the, you know, the, the silver spigot where, you know, you have your own seat because you're there when they open up. And I found out what they wanted and, and I, I started to go back into the business that I know best. And I started to do well and uh, really well. And I'm not, not saying this because uh, look at me, how what a hot shot I am. I'm saying this because I had in my head, when I have this and that and this, then I'm going to be okay. I'm a when and a then. When I have that, then I'm going to be okay. And if I set the level here and I get there, then I say, no, you misconstrued it. I meant here. 
So when I needed, you know, the wife had to go and a mistress and a girlfriend and new places and new playmates and fancy things and, you know, custom-made black leather suits, wearing sunglasses, middle of the night, trying to be anonymous. <laughs> you know, Vince loves this part, driving around in my red Ferrari with license plates that says SDRNR. And he said he was going to steal it once. I didn't even know that. I wish he would have. I, I mean, I, I owed a lot of money. You know? <laughs> I could have used the insurance money. As instead, I put it in the bay one night, trying to collect. All they did is fish it out, told me to fix it. Uh, you know, I, I was trying to be cool. And traveling all over the world, having new friends from South America. <laughs> And see, and I now had what you wanted. And you were willing to go to any lengths to get it. And I made you go to lengths to get it. And I want you to know something, that alcohol and the drug that I was selling is not the most narcotic thing for me. What was the most narcotic thing for me is power. I had the power of your life in my hands. And from time to time, I'd let you know that. And that is more narcotic to me than any of the other things combined. There was a time, I don't need to share this with you, but I need to let you know who I truly am. We were in Palm Springs and we were playing poker and uh, uh, we had just completed a deal. We had large piles of green and white and, and uh, we had it going on. We were staying in the fanciest suite they had and you know, like, it's happening, baby. And I'm king of the hill. And I bet a sum of money and the guy to my left says, do you have it or you don't? I said, bet and find out. And he asked me again, and I'm sure that mother was every other word, and I responded in kind. That's kind of the language that we used back then. And it escalated, and it doesn't take very long to irritate me. And so finally, I, he, he said to me, look, you cheap Jew bastard, do you have it or you don't? I went, and I pumped the slug into his chest. I remember him just flying out of the wall and slamming up against the wall and sliding down and blood everywhere. I can tell you the expression in his face, and I can tell you what I felt. Nothing. I looked over to the next guy and said, he's out, it's your bet. He folded. <laughs> and I took what was mine by right of conquest and possession. Now that's the person who's standing in front of you. That's the person that I was. And I'm not going to sit here, by the way, and lay it on alcohol. I am not going to sit here and say, look what alcohol and drugs did to me. This is where I wanted to go. That was just the vehicle that I used. So I'm not one of those people that sit there and say, oh, well, that's an excuse. It's absolutely no excuse as far as I'm concerned. And I was, uh, you know, I was doing my thing and, you know, I, I went from the big stash house, you know, the big fancy house, and, and eventually I was just living in the stash house. That's all I was, holding on to automatic weapons and huge piles of white and peeking out the window. Getting loaded all the time, trying to, you know, come down, and if I, I couldn't, couldn't stop, I'd stick a needle in my arm and take some sodium pentothal and pass out. And wake up and do it again. And again, and again, and again, ad nauseum. You know, and I, and I couldn't get off the treadmill, and every day I'd sit there with that gun in my lap and say, if you have any guts, blow your brains out. Well, on April 18th, 1984, a little deal went down. I mean, a little deal, a stupid little deal. And I decided that I was going to go out and go to a bar. It's the only place I know to go. I Nobody invites me to their house. So I went to a bar. Walking out of that bar, I, I saw what I knew was an alcoholic. See, I, I've never let ignorance stand in the way of me forming an opinion. 
And an alcoholic, of my understanding, is a bum who lives in the street and drinks out of paper bottles and is dirty and filthy and smells. That's an alcoholic. You can't be me, baby. Look what I got. I got it going on. I'm dying, but I'm looking good. At least so I think. So I reached in my pocket to give him some money, he pulled back his coat, stick his sword off under my throat, says DEA, hit the ground. Well, you know, I just didn't want to go through it anymore and I said, just blow my brains out. I cursed at him and spit at him and kicked at him and I begged him to just end it right there. Obviously he didn't or you'd have another speaker. <laughs> and uh, he took me to jail. And while I was in jail, they took everything I have away. They're very efficient about that. <laughs> All that was me, the sum total of my life, was gone in an instant. And I needed to get out of jail. And I told these people that I'd do something for them that I knew I couldn't do, and uh, they let me out of jail. I, I, I managed to avoid them. I made a phone call to my business associates, and I said, we have a loose end. I'm it. If you could do me a favor, make it quick. That's all I asked and told exactly where I'd be. And I sat on a street corner for eight hours and they didn't come and I don't know why. They have tied up loose ends before and since that I've been told. And a miracle in my life happened when I had the eyes to see, the ears to hear, heart to feel anything. And after sitting there for eight hours, I, all I could think of was, I need a drink. Bad. And I didn't have any way to get a drink. I didn't have any money. I didn't have what you wanted. You didn't want me in your life. I'm screwed. So I went to somebody's house that I knew, I broke in, I stole his daughter's piggy bank, I smashed it on the floor, I took a nickels and dimes and pennies, and I went for one drink on April 19, 1984. I came to, on May 18, 1984, I was living in a dumpster. Downtown San Diego. Across the street from that dumpster was a federal prison which was going to be home for a long time. I don't know, they say I had a moment of clarity, I'm not exactly sure, I think I just I was terrified. I walked from downtown to Claremont Mesa Boulevard in 163 and I walked into my insurance agent for some strange reason to tell him I couldn't make the insurance payments on the cars. <laughs> they had them. I don't have to make payments anymore. But I went to see him. I don't know why. I can't tell you. I sat down, filthy, stinking, wretched human being that I was after living in a dumpster for a month and sold my blood and kicked out of detox and mission and, you know, I mean, all those places. And he said, sit down. What's your problem? I said, um, come, done nothing. He said, what? Um, come, done nothing. He said, look me in the eye for the first time and tell me what's going on. I said, I think I have a small problem with drugs and alcohol. A smile came to his face from ear to ear. He stood up, put his hand across the desk. He said, my name is Paul S. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. I have been waiting for you for six and a half years. He says, we got to get busy. <laughs> Why? He says, we need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous right away. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> my life's not that bad. And he did what you just did. He laughed at me. And I want you to know it had been a long time since anybody laughed at me. So I reached into my belt and all I found was my belt. 
And if you're new and you come up to somebody and you tell them your deepest, darkest pain, I mean, it is just, it is the burden of your life. And they break out into just hysterics. And your first thought is slit their throat from ear to ear. I understand. They are not laughing at your pain. They are laughing at your solution. And the reason they're laughing at it is they tried it. It didn't work for them. It ain't going to work for you. And he said, I understand. Meet me at the corner at 6 o'clock and get the hell out of my office. I did not get the sponsor from love. I got the most miserable human being that I exactly needed in my life. You know, if there's a bent pot, there's a bent lid. You will find exactly what you need in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was a bent pot. He was a bent lid. He, you know, it's like, shut up and do it. Well, I didn't go and meet him that day. I met him the next day because he just showed up at 6 o'clock, I guess. I didn't have a watch, so he showed up. Went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. is Rancho Santa Fe, California, on May 20th, 1984. He said, when we go in there, don't talk to anybody. Well, why? He says, they don't want what you have. <laughs> Sit and shut up. Okay. They called on me, and I, I said, I want what you have. I want to know when you're out so I can steal it. And I sat down. <laughs> and they came up to me and said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. After the meeting, you know, they said, if, if you'd like a cake next week, please let me know. So I went up to him and said, I'd like a cake. <laughs> the woman said, aren't you new? I said, how did you know? <laughs> she says, well, we give cakes for years year of sobriety. I said, but I'm very hungry. <laughs> she says, well, we'll have a cake. You can have some of it. I said, okay. <laughs> the, the solutions are real simple, you know. I mean, I just did what ran into my mind. And he put me on his program of recovery. And I, you know, I, I still had a lot of problems. And I'm facing jail. And I, he sends me to a recovery home. I went to the Heartland House and lived there for a year. Oh, I hated that place. I went there for one afternoon to tell him to interview. He says, you alcoholic? I said, nope, drug addict. He said, get out. <laughs> went back to my sponsor's office to say I tried real hard. He said, congratulations, you move in a half an hour. I went there for the weekend. I stayed there a year. They threw me out. I didn't want to go after I was there. It was a great place. But I learned in that place one thing, the biggest lesson I learned, as I watched men who were nicer than me, had more going on than me, were genuine, loving children of God, die from the disease of alcoholism. And I would scream at my sponsor, why them and not me? And he would say, it's a mystery. I don't know. Perhaps they were missing a key ingredient to this program. You should watch what these people do and make sure that you do everything that you need to do. And if they're missing an ingredient, make sure that you're not. And so I got put on this path of rigorous action. And I got involved and, I mean, got involved. And I mean, I love what went on here tonight. The steering committee, the first five minutes, you know, I go to the Saturday night speaker meeting in La Jolla and you, you've taken a few of our little notes and in, incorporated them here because it wasn't unique to us. We stole it from another meeting. Um, and I, they're wearing ties and they're clean cut and I mean they're involved in service. And you know, I, I, nothing will ensure so much immunity from drinking as work with another alcoholic. And if you're not capable of being somebody's sponsor, you're capable of setting up chairs. I hated going to meetings. I got there very late and left real early. My sponsor says, okay, I understand. Be there an hour before it starts. I 
said, you don't understand, I don't like those people, and they make me feel goofy. He says, be there an hour before it starts, this way you don't have to meet one at a time as they walk into the room. The room will fill up around you. This is stupid. He says, I know, just do it. Okay. And I would tell him about all the things that I absolutely hated, and he would have the dumbest solutions. And I would just do them, always to prove that he was wrong. And he was never wrong. And I needed to change sponsors, and I found somebody who was even more difficult. And I changed sponsors the third time to a gentleman by the name of Barney. And, and, and Barney is just no piece of cake either. I mean, he involved, involved, involved. It says into action, not into thinking. Shut up and do. Oh, okay. Why? Because you get to stay sober. And that's it. And I went to court 17 times for sentencing. On the 17th time, the judge didn't send me to jail. I don't know why. He sent everybody else, but he didn't send me. He sentenced me to the worst hell I could possibly imagine. Five years of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I got to 12-step his brother 10 years later. I didn't know why. I, I get involved in, 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 in these things. My mother got sick with cancer, and, and you know, and I had to make amends, and believe me, my amends list is long. And I broke it down into various sections. Right away, soon, someday, no bleeping way. <laughs> and I just started on them. And you know, I've cleaned up almost all of them. Some I don't even know their names or their faces. Last roundup, I, I met a guy who was the main speaker on Saturday night who I ripped off 25 years ago. <laughs> well, that's not fair. <laughs> I didn't remember his name, and he said, I know you. <laughs> Were you ever in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska 25 years ago? I think so. <laughs> you were my woman! Oh, shit. <laughs> How much was that? You know? <laughs> I go to conferences. I went to speak at a conference, in, in, it was supposed to be held in Arizona, it turned out to be in Mexico, and, and this woman gave me a ride. She was my ride. And uh, it was a very long ride. Fortunately for me, because I, w I fell in love with her. And uh, we communicated for a year, and we got married. And uh, I had no idea at the time that she had 90 days of sobriety. <laughs> she was new now, but she'll be old later. You know what I mean? <laughs> Scoop your right up. And uh, she came with a son. And I have a father. After my mother died, my father moved in, and we live here in a house in San Diego, and uh, we have a blended family, and believe me, I do not know how to do family. I am so self-centered. I look at this kid and I say, you have some wonderful potential if you'd only apply yourself. <laughs> I told him one day, I said, if you ever think of drinking or using drugs, I will know. I said, how do you know? I said, trust me, I will know this. And he, I've taken him to lots of meetings, never my story, but lots of meetings. And he looked at me with these little blue eyes, and a little tear came to him and said, but how am I going to work out my story? <laughs> There's a chance he might be one of us. 
you know, and, and that's okay. He'll need to do what he needs to do. And the whole purpose of this whole program in that book was to raise our bottoms, and we have done that effectively. You don't have to go where I've gone. You just have to go where you've gone. You know, and, and if you, you're, you, you hit your bottom when you put down the shovel and you finish digging the hole. It's as simple as that. You know, and, and I have been blessed beyond my wildest dreams. I have the same, I got a job, and uh, I didn't want one. I wanted it for six months. It's lasted almost 16 years. They keep trying to fire me. I keep refusing to leave. <laughs> I'm still there. Uh, I don't know how long that is. It's not my job. It's God's job. It's not my household. It's God's household. You know, I am... Um, I'm going to close with three prayers because the bell has rung. And, uh, and it's, it's time to, to end. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me my their best every day. I hope I've given you my best. If you're new to the first prayer, I pray to God you keep coming back. And you listen to the music. Music? The love and the laughter of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You heard it here tonight. You should hear it at every meeting you go to. If you don't hear it at those meetings, don't go to those meetings. And just keep coming back and one day you'll understand the words and you'll be able to sing with us. Second prayer, if you're new, I pray to God you keep coming back and put your hand in ours. Not mine, ours, collectively. But don't ever let go. Because if you let go, we might lose you, and we don't want to lose anybody if we can help it. The third prayer is a difficult one. If you're new, and I consider myself new every day, keep coming back. And let us love you. Love you, you know, if you felt like I did, dirty, not only on the outside, but on the inside, where a new suit of clothes and a shower is not going to clean it up. I remember I was two years sober. I was at the Southern California Convention. I was standing in the lobby, feeling very odd and goofy and lonely. All these people around. I can be lonely in a crowd. And I looked across the lobby, and there's the guy I shot and left for dead in Palm Springs. That's what I said. He found me. <laughs> and all I have is this little AA badge. And I froze. And he walked up to me nose to nose and he puts his arms around me and he's crying and he asks, is there any way in the world that I could forgive him? It wasn't he who needed forgiveness, it was me. I didn't do that. Alcoholics Anonymous did that. A loving God who expressing himself. This fellowship, this book and these steps. See, today I know what the problem is. I know what the solution is, Alcoholics Anonymous. I also know a planned program of action. So if you're new, I pray to God you keep coming back and let us love you. Not until you learn to love yourself. That's crap. You learn to love another human being unconditionally. Take them by the hand, nurture them, and God will be as good to you as it has been to me. I thank you so much.